Let us hear then the word of God, Romans 3, beginning in verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God is increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Well, as we uh, begin here this morning, uh, we uh, sometimes hear people ask the question or say something to the effect, why do bad things happen to good people? And of course, the underlying assumption there is that person thinks that we're a good person. I'm a good person. And, uh, and so why are these bad things happening to me? Why, why all the evil in the world? Why wars in the Middle East or Ukraine or uh, even in our own country in certain ways. You know, why is this happening? Or more specifically to ourselves, why did God have, fill in the blank, why did God have this happen in my life? Why am I having health trouble? Why am I having relationship problems? Why are my children having trouble? or grandchildren, or something to that effect. Why is it so hard at work? Why is my boss such a difficult person to work with? Or whatever it is. And maybe in specific then, here in this context, with what Paul is going to tell us, why is it that there are some people in our lives that we care about that don't believe in Jesus? And in particular, those who've grown up in the church. Why do they not trust in the Lord? So as we think about some of these questions, and we've all asked them in one way or another, um, Paul's going to address this to some degree here in these verses. There is much more to say, and he will say more in chapter 9, for example. But he does tell us a very important point here in these couple verses, as we'll see. Well, last time we began this subsection... And Paul is uh, going off of his argument in some ways here. And since chapter 1, verse 18, he has been telling us relentlessly, exposing our sinfulness, showing our idolatry, our hypocrisy, our lack of goodness, our lack of holiness, as well as how we trust in ourselves and trust in outward religion. But here now in this section, Paul is saying, um, okay, there are objections to what I have been uh, teaching you. And so let me address some of these objections. Most likely he heard things like this as he was preaching and teaching in the synagogue in particular, but even outside of that. And so he begins to answer these questions here. He will say more in chapters 9 through 11, uh, as well as some other things there. And so last time we started with the first objection in verses 1 and 2. And uh, 
here basically he says, if outward religion does not save us, if circumcision or being an Israelite or the law of Moses or the sacrifices or the food laws, if any of these things cannot save us from the judgment that we deserve, then why bother doing them? Okay, to put it in our terminology, hey, as Stan just prayed, why bother coming to church? Why set aside a day in seven? Why come here to worship and to sing and, and pray and so forth? Why should we do baptism or read our Bibles or, or care for the poor or help widows or support pro-life or any number of other things? If none of them do nothing to improve our standing before God, then why bother? Well, Paul has been telling us that it's our sin that makes them ineffective for salvation. But that doesn't mean there's no inherent blessing in them at all. There is, because God gave them. Now, Paul here, of course, emphasized the scriptures, especially there you see that in verse 2. God's word brings blessing. And I think you can say that's always the case. Maybe not ultimately the case for somebody, but always, even to an unbeliever, when they hear the word of God, they're going to receive some blessing from that. They are blessed with knowing some truth, having knowledge of God, even as they reject it, even as they face ultimate curses. Now, this is what I was emphasizing last week. But, uh, you know, sometimes I get so intent on what the text says that I, I don't always address some broader ideas. And I, as I was reflecting on things here this week, I thought I'd start with uh, some of these broader thoughts uh, as we... Uh, review and transition to the next uh, objection. Paul's going to address some of these things later on, like in chapter 7 or chapter 12 or, or whatever. But how does outward religion bless the true Jew is the question. The true Christian, those whose hearts are changed. Okay? How do we receive blessings from the outward forms of religion? Well, this is very extended uh, idea, but just simply, we obviously receive more blessings than the unbeliever who sits in church and participates in the outward forms of religion. And that's because, right, God's worked in our heart. God is using this in a much greater way than the unbeliever. Furthermore, uh, the blessings we receive now are going to be ours forever which, of course, is not true of the unbeliever who sits in church and receives some blessings. Um, <coughs> in addition, though, when God sees us trying to do uh, things to please him, and obviously we're sitting here, we're worshiping, we're trying to hear what his word has to say, we just prayed and sung and gave tithes and so forth, when he sees us do these things, because our heart has been changed, because he has uh, made us one of his. I've used this, this uh, scale before, right? From one to a hundred. Hey, apart from God's grace to us, we can't even get above zero. And no matter what we try to do to please God. But now that we are his people, we can rate on this scale. Now it's much lower than we want to think. Hey, maybe we're in the tens or twenties. We're not anywhere close to a hundred. Even on our best days, we probably don't even hardly break 40. But see, God sees our efforts, 
And he is pleased with our efforts, yes. But more importantly, when God sees us, even right now as we are trying to worship, he sees Christ, who has kept all of these things perfectly. And so when he looks at me, when he looks at you, he sees perfection because Jesus has done it perfectly. And that's why he can bless us by doing these outward forms of religion. If he were to bless us according to the, the, the minuscule effort we're actually giving, we wouldn't receive hardly any blessings. <laughs> but since Jesus did it 100%, we can receive all kinds of blessings, even though our worship, our efforts are still quite pathetic compared to God's standard of perfection. And this, of course, gives us confidence. So uh, if we consider, for example, reading the Bible or hearing it read, as we have here this morning, or listen now to a sermon, it's not going to save us. And for the unbeliever, it's going to bring some blessing because now they know, for example, here in Romans 1 and 2, that our efforts are not ever good enough. It's good to know that. Okay? And it's certainly better than thinking that we're a good person. Both will end in hell, but one is closer to salvation. They're going to be less likely to be duped by the world or false shepherds. But for the true Christian, okay, we don't read perfectly. We are distracted. Okay, I just read through Revelation, the last two chapters. Were you totally intent on every word? No, I wasn't. For you, okay. do we fully understand? Do we misunderstand? Do we resist the truth in our old man? Do we blame the messenger when we don't like what we're hearing? Of course, we do these things. But since Christ is our mediator, God is pleased with our efforts, however small and, and uh, insignificant they are, because he sees that our sin is punished in Christ, and he sees that Christ is obeyed perfectly in our place. That's why we receive blessings. Not because we're pretty good. It's because Christ is perfect. That's why we receive the blessings of the covenant. This doesn't mean we don't try, though. Hey, God wants us to strive unto holiness. Hey, See, I think it was one of the passages Eric had us read in Sunday school speaks to that. I think it was, was Isaiah 40, maybe, or something like that. God wants us to do that. And we do receive more blessings the more we put into it, if you will. Let's turn here a moment to Genesis chapter 22 and see an example of this idea. In Genesis 22, you might say this is the greatest thing that Abraham ever did in his whole life. Okay, and we might debate some other things, but certainly this would be right up there if it's not the top. And you remember here in Genesis 22, God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And he did. He was going to go through with it. Now, did Abraham do it perfectly? Of course not. None of us do. Surely Abraham would have questioned God. What you want? What you want me to kill the promised child? This doesn't make any sense. You can imagine that he wrestled with this at least to some degree. In Hebrews, it says he finally concluded that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead, and this is why he went through with it. 
But surely there must have been some uncertainty. Maybe he had to lie to convince Isaac to come along or something. Yeah, I mean, he didn't do it perfectly. None of us do. And yet, note what it says here, especially beginning in verse 15. An angel comes, speaks to him a second time, right? After uh, um, he told him to stop and provided the substitute. So verse 16, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sandwiches on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies and your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now this obviously is not talking about work salvation. Abraham's conversion was at the very least in chapter 15. Hey, there's debate on whether it's chapter 12 or 15. And, okay, but that was many years before. Abraham is a true Jew, a true believer here. And so we're not talking about earning our way to heaven. But because God credited righteousness to Abraham in chapter 15, verse 6, God sees Abraham as fully perfect in his sight because of the righteousness that the son of Abraham would eventually accomplish, right, in Jesus. And so when God sees him here in Genesis 22, probably the greatest thing he did in his whole life, you know, maybe he rated a 40 or a 50 on the scale. Maybe he was that high, but it still wasn't perfect. And so the blessings God is giving to Abraham, yes, is because he obeyed. But ultimately, it's because God credited righteousness to him, and that righteousness comes through Christ. Do you see the point? Outward forms of religion bring blessing because of Jesus' perfection. That's why we do them. That's why we are blessed. They're not going to save us, but they have much value, especially for the people of God. So to expand on Paul's point here, I thought it might be helpful for us to, to uh, say these few things here as we begin today. But let's come back now to Paul's point here in Romans chapter 3. And his point has been this. My sin nullifies the blessings of ultimate salvation. But that does not nullify the reality that God brings blessings. Here again, he's focusing on God's word. This is true for the unbeliever. It's true even more so, of course, for the true believer. So now Paul brings another objection. Again, imagine Paul sitting in the synagogue hearing people object to what he's telling us here. So in verse 3 now, the second objection that he addresses is this. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Okay, so what about this, Paul? Does our lack of faith and trust in God nullify God's faithfulness? Now, I've mentioned this on other occasions. Sometimes in the Greek, they word things in such a way to give the intended answer to a question. That's not always the case, but it is the case here. And the intended answer to this question is no. So by the way it's worded, he's already giving us the answer. The answer is no. Our lack of faith does not nullify God's faithfulness. 
All right, now, let's step back here just a moment. Paul is using the word for faith or trust or belief four times in verses 2 and 3. The first one is the hardest one for us to see. And the New King James in verse 2 translates the word as committed. Now, you might remember last week I kept using the term entrusted. We've been entrusted with the word of God. And I did that specifically because of the point I'm making now. The second word here, of course, is believe. Verse 3, what if some did not believe? The third one, will their unbelief? And fourthly, make the faithfulness of God without effect. All four of those words have the same root word in it. They're all a little bit different, but they all have the same root word. And so some, trans, uh, some commentators, I should say, want us to translate them similarly. So... I think maybe the best way of doing that is this. Verse 2, because to them were entrusted the oracles of God. Now verse 3, but what if some refused to trust? Will their lack of trust make the trustworthiness of God without effect? Now if we try to use the word faith in this, you could say it's something like this. To them, we're given the words of God to faithfully uphold. But what if some did not respond in faith? Will their lack of faith make the faithfulness of God without effect? Now, I'm bringing this out here because Paul is giving us um, maybe a heads up as to where he's going to go. But he's already mentioned it too. Remember back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he talked about faith. The idea of justification by faith is going to be the key idea once we get to verse 27 here in chapter 3. From there through chapter 4, this is his primary focal point. Elaborating on the centrality of faith in Jesus. And he's he's kind of preparing us for it here in some ways with these four words. Now Paul has been saying that salvation does not depend on anything we do, including our faith and our faithfulness. Because our faith is imperfect. It is always filled with doubt in some way or another. And so we cannot be saved, as Paul would say, because of our faith. He never says we're saved because of our faith. Because our faith is imperfect. We're dead in our sins. We are slaves and so on and so forth. We are only saved because of God's faithfulness to his promises. We are saved through the perfect work of Christ. We are saved by the Spirit changing our hearts so that we can respond in repentance and faith. So I think part of what Paul is communicating here in in verse 3 and 4 is that our imperfect faith does not nullify God's faithfulness. Our imperfect faithfulness also, as true believers, does not nullify God's faithfulness. We have failed to uphold the trust that God has given to us regarding his word. We have not done it perfectly. The responsibility that we have been given, we have been irresponsible with it. And so any false teaching, any disobedience to scripture proves the point. And so our unbelief is pointed out by our hypocrisy. And again, this is what Paul has been addressing. So notice then what he is saying. 
His point is simply this. We're the problem. Not God. Okay? If you've been listening carefully since chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 2, okay, you've come up with objections in your mind too. Paul's addressing four of them here. And basically what he is saying in every one of them is, you're the problem, not God. Okay? God is still God, and our sin does not diminish God, doesn't diminish the privileges he's given, doesn't diminish his character. Now, chapter 2, verse 24, our sin can bring blasphemy against God, but that doesn't change God essentially. Even if no one believes, even God's chosen people, God is not the problem. We are. It's Israel that broke the covenant. It was Israel that acted like the nations. It was Israel that rejected the Messiah and murdered him. But we would have too if we were there. <laughs> and in a, in a very real sense, right, it's my sin that nailed Christ to the cross. We are the problem. Okay. Now, <clears throat> let me add also another point here. I do think that Paul is speaking generally about faith but he does say what if some do not believe and so it is also the case and it's a point that he's going to greatly elaborate upon in chapter 9 that Paul is saying well okay the Messiah came to Israel how come so many Israelites didn't believe in him hey what do we do with that does this mean God failed Again, Paul is simply saying, look, your objection is missing the whole point. God is not the problem here. We are. Even the Jews that didn't believe in Jesus, it's their problem, not God's problem. So let me expand the point here in this way. Whenever something goes wrong in our lives, and it can be something minor that's happened you know, during our day. It could be something quite major in our lives. Right? Our, our initial sinful response is to investigate God. Why did you do this, God? Why is this happening in my life? What are you doing? This isn't what I wanted, God. What is going on? We've all been there, haven't we? Okay. Why in the world would you send a beautiful young girl who's going to have cancer three times before she gets to 20? What is going on, Lord? This doesn't make any sense. Fill in the blank with whatever it is that you struggle with. Does this mean that God has failed? Paul says, absolutely not. He's not the problem. We are. The reason why we suffer in life is because of sin. My sin specifically Sin in general, we read from the confession in chapter 6, right? All manner of corruption is because of Adam's sin, and we participate in that. We're the problem, not God. And, and this has to be our understanding. Why do bad things happen to good people? There are no good people. And so God's religious privileges do not save because of our sin, God's people don't believe 
because of our sin. But God's privileges are still privileges, and God's character is still the same. Now, as I said a moment ago, Paul's going to expand on this point in chapter 9. But I say that specifically because some people try to import everything that Paul says in Romans 9 back here. It's definitely connected. But Paul's going to expand on the point in chapter 9, and especially in verses 6 and following. He's addressing the specific issue here again. What happened to Israel? They didn't accept their Messiah. Why not? Well, he says, well, not Israel is Israel. And he goes and talks about the issue of election. He's not talking about election here in chapter 3. What he's talking about here is God's not to blame. He's going to say that in chapter 9. He just doesn't get into the extra things here. And so I do think that Paul is addressing faith in a general sense, but also addressing the issue of the Israelite who has not accepted Jesus. I think both are here, but in either case, the ultimate point is we're the problem. So let's bring in now Paul's response in verse 4. Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. All right, as I said a little bit ago, in chapter 3, or excuse me, verse 3, Paul has already answered the question by how he worded it. The answer is no. But now he gives a very emphatic no to the question. In fact, in Greek, this is the strongest way you can say no. We do it in English by tone of voice, inflection, uh, adding words or something like that. Uh, Paul's not merely saying no. He's not even simply saying no way. But something along the lines of not on your life. Absolutely not. Absolutely and positively no or something to that effect. Now most of our translations paraphrase this. And they say certainly not like the New King James or maybe God forbid Probably the best way to translate it is, may it never be. That seems a bit mild, though, to our ears. But the point is, don't even think this way. You might say that Paul is in shock that anyone would question God's character. But he's not totally shocked because he's done the same thing. Now, we call this a theodicy. If you look at the sermon title, you get the word there. Paul's theodicy. And what we mean by this word is simply we are trying to defend God's ways. Not that God needs defending, but this is the idea, right? We're defending what God has said, what he has done, and so on and so forth. So that Paul is doing that. Okay? And so Paul is, is defending God. It, it, don't even think about the idea that, that our lack of faith is going to nullify God's faithfulness. That, that's not even possible. And then he commands us. It says, let God be true. That's a command. Now, we're not used to third-person commands in, in English, but this is a third-person command. But simply, he's commanding us, let God be true. This is how we need to think. God is true, and let every man be a liar, which, of course, is true. Every sinner is a liar. 
You, me, everyone else. No one, though, can accuse God of sin. He is always fully in every way true. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, I often make mention of two key covenant words. And the one is hesed, and the other is emeth. If Paul were writing in Hebrew, he would use the term emeth here. Because emeth is referring to truth, being true, being reliable, trustworthy, keeping promises. This is who God is. God is true. Think that way. Believe that. Live that way. God is faithful to all of his promises, all of his character, all of his ways. And that includes punishing sinners for their sin. That includes not saving people. Even those among his chosen. This too displays God's faithfulness. Let's turn here a moment to Nehemiah chapter 9. You recall that Nehemiah was in exile in Babylon. And in Nehemiah 9, we have his great confession of of, uh, sin. And you'll see it's quite lengthy. Let me call our attention specifically to verse 33. And note what he says here. Nehemiah 9, verse 33. He says, however, you are just in all that has befallen us. Now, remember, Jerusalem was destroyed, people were taken to exile, people were killed. Remember, they were eating one another during the besieging of Jerusalem. It was awful stuff. Let me say that again. You are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. That's Paul's point. Anytime these evil things happen, it's because of our sin, either directly or indirectly. Let's turn to uh, Daniel chapter 9, because Daniel does the same thing. In exile in Babylon, he also has this confession, uh, this prayer of confession. Um, And again, we could read the whole thing here down through verse 19, but uh, let me highlight verse 11 for us. Daniel 9, verse 11. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. Again, this is Paul's point. God is being faithful when he punishes sin. Our sin, our lack of faith, is not negating God's faithfulness, not in any way. God must punish sin, everybody's sin, and there's nothing we can do that will spare us from the judgment, right? Only God can do something, as right? we saw at the end of chapter 2 of Romans. Now, as we come back here to Romans 3, <clears throat> let me also now segue into David. Uh, David, obviously, uh, has something to say about this, and Paul's going to quote from Psalm 51, and we'll look at that here in just a moment. Um, And in this psalm, remember, David confesses his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah and so forth. But God was faithful to judge David. 
David repented of his sins. God forgave him of his sins. God blessed him in many ways, but he was also faithful to bring judgment against David for his sin. Remember, his son died a week after he was born. He had many family problems. Even one of his sons tried to take the throne, a coup attempt. God is faithful in all ways. God's promises are not just blessings, but God's promises also include the curses. And so though the Jews were unfaithful, Paul says, though Christians are unfaithful, God's promises are still in place, both promises of blessing and promises of cursing. God is not changing. Okay. God is faithful, even though none of us are. And this is true even of the remnant. And so God's character is unassailable, Paul is saying. Ours, <clears throat> well, not so good. Let me read here two passages briefly. This is first from Psalm 116. And in verse 11, it says, all men are liars. Clearly, Paul has this in mind. Then also in Psalm 62, verse 9, it says, Surely men are of low degree are a vapor, men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. Clearly, Paul has this in mind. All of us are liars because, chapter 1, we suppress the truth about God and worship idols. All of us are liars because we think we're better than others. The beginning of chapter 2. All of us are liars because we think God is obligated to bless us because of our use of the outward means of grace. That's the rest of chapter 2. But we're liars. We are the opposite of God. We are unreliable, untrustworthy. We break our promises. We are the opposite of Emeth. And so again, the problem is ours, not God's. And so Paul here then, again, probably thinking of an argument that he heard in the synagogue, and I would suspect he heard it multiple times. And he is saying here, look, there's no question that God's ways are somewhat inscrutable. When bad things happen to us, many times we're just like, I don't even know what to think. I don't even know how to understand this. Right? Been there. We, we've all been there, right? But ultimately, Paul is responding to these questions and saying, we're the problem. This is why bad things happen. It's not God's fault. So don't ever question him. Trust in him is the opposite point here, right? Live by faith in him. Because nothing can assail his character, not even our sin. Well, let's turn now to Psalm 51 and uh, <clears throat> look here briefly at this quotation that Paul has. Now, you recall a few weeks ago, we read the whole of Psalm 51, and we've been singing Psalm 51 off and on over the last few months, including this morning. And um, this is why. As Paul quotes from it. And so we see then, uh, especially verses 3 and 4, 
Verse 3, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Can you say Romans 1, 18 through chapter 2? Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now again, David is not denying that he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and the rest. But ultimately, all of our sins are against God. And then, here's the quote, what he quotes. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Pretty straightforward here, isn't it? Our sin and God's faithfulness to punish our sin, like he does David, manifests God's justice. When he pronounces judgment against us, he is blameless when he does this. God is fully just when he does, because sin is our problem. David has no defense, and neither do we. Our sin, our faithlessness, are the reason why it happens. And so again, we cannot blame God at all. And so when bad things happen, when David's son died a week after birth, can't blame God for that. We blame ourselves. And so if, um, when we transition, though, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, when they translated this Hebrew into Greek, uh, a couple changes were made. In the first line, they're very minor. There's really no difference at all. It's just when you go from one language to the next, sometimes there's a little change. All right. But in the second line, there is a clear change. Here in the Hebrew, again, it says, uh, you are blameless when you judge. But if you come back here to Romans 3, notice it says, it may overcome when you are judged. You see how that's different. Now, both is true. Both are true, right? God is blameless in all of his judgments. He doesn't uh, sin in any way in that. Okay? But note what Paul is saying. Okay? No objection raised against God is going to be successful. God's going to overcome all of our objections. God, why is this happening in my life? Right? He's going to overcome all of those. And so when we blame God for our problems, when we don't understand the decision he has made to bring hardship in my life or someone that I love, okay, he's going to overcome all accusations and all judgments that we pronounce against him. Now again, in light of the context here, we could talk about health problems and relationship problems and so on and so forth, but the main idea is what if some don't have faith? Okay. If our children don't believe, if our siblings don't believe, if people we love in the extended family or we work with or whatever, if they don't believe, then God's not the problem. Don't blame him, and he's going to overcome all of our accusations anyway. And then if we go back and look at chapters 1 and 2 here in Romans, our objections have been these. And I'm sure all of us have said this at one point in time. I know I have. Hey, maybe you're not consciously aware of it, but all of us have said, well, I'm not that bad. Well, that's true of the person sitting over there, but I'm not as bad as they are. Or maybe your objection is, Scott, quit beating a dead horse. 
But God triumphs over all of them. He can never be proven wrong. All right. You get the idea here? It's pretty straightforward. We're the problem. Our sins do not nullify God's character. He is always faithful to himself and his promises, including when he judges. And so the next time you complain about what's happening in your life, remember these words of Paul. The next time you try to understand why someone that you care about does not believe in Jesus, remember these words. There is more to this question than what Paul gives us here. But this has to be part of our understanding. God's not the problem. And that's how we can come to an understanding. All right. Well, as always, more can be said. And we'll turn to more objections here, beginning in verse 5 here next time. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the advantage of having your word. Because, of course, left to ourselves, we would not think this way. We would blame you. And we would feel justified in doing so. But we are thankful, Lord, that your word makes clear that there is no sin in you. There is nothing blameworthy in you. There is nothing, no plan, no purpose, nothing from some physical feature in our body we don't like when we look in the mirror to very profound and difficult, challenging things in our lives. We are thankful, Lord, that you are filled with MS, truthfulness, trustworthiness. And this gives us hope and confidence. Lord, forgive us, though, for blaming you when hard things happen. Forgive us through Christ and enable us, strengthen us. Keep our minds focused on this truth that you are not to blame, we are. May this give us strength and fortitude to handle the challenging things that you bring our way. And as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, may this Advent season where we remember the first and second comings of Christ May this enable us to give us hope and and joy and peace and love in the midst of the hardships of life. And so, Lord, we do praise you for being our God and never changing. And so we pray all these things through Christ, who has obeyed perfectly for us and who has taken the punishment that we deserve. We pray in his name. Amen.